0: Good morning. Thanks so much, Dave, for the invitation to come and share with you this morning. I'm trying so desperately not to be the uncle who, when you were growing up, you rolled your eyes at, who hadn't, you hadn't seen for a few months, and you bumped into at a family gathering and said, my, haven't you grown? You know, and uh, so I'm trying not to be that among you this morning, but it's so encouraging uh, to be here and to be among you and to hear and see and glimpse some of the encouraging work that God is doing among you. We're going to read together from Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25 to help us think about this theme of community in the church, what it means to be scattered together. And as I read this, this is God's Word. This is the only bit in the next half an hour or so that is 100% accurate, 100% reliable, 100% trustworthy. So uh, let's dig into God's Word, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, A couple of weeks ago, I found myself in the middle of a really difficult conflict situation. It was a really angry confrontation, and I honestly just didn't know how to handle it. The person screamed directly in my face. Their face was twisted in frustration and anger, and the atmosphere was tense. I made some sort of a suggestion, and that was met with disdain, and a torrent of abuse came my way the individual in question shouted these words at me. I don't like it around here anymore. It was at that point I told our six-year-old son that he needed to share better with his younger brother. You see, Noah loved the idea a couple of years ago of having a younger brother in the family. He loved the idea of our family growing And it's funny that no matter what age or stage that we're at, we can be tempted to sometimes think or even say those words, I don't like it around here anymore. You see, the vision that Noah had of having a younger brother isn't always matched with the reality of what that actually looks like. So he was excited about having a young brother, but at times he's frustrated that he needs to share or he's frustrated when that little boy annoys him. And sometimes the vision that he had doesn't always meet the reality. I sometimes wonder if it's similar when it comes to the community of the church. We like the vision, perhaps. We set out with a vision of Endless laughter and fun and sweet singing together and spiritual highs and goosebumps in our arms. And we picture the Bride of Christ working beautifully together, perfectly in harmony as we share the common purpose of changing the world together. Doesn't that sound brilliant? It's a brilliant vision. And then the reality doesn't always meet that vision. You know, just like Instagram photos at a wedding, you know, the side pose and the laughing at one another in a group pretending that we don't know that the camera is there when the reality is we don't know any of the other guests and the chat at the table was incredibly dull and the DJ was rubbish and no one danced and we went home at 10 o'clock. The vision that we project or even long for sometimes didn't meet the reality. And I think there's a danger of that when it comes to community in the church. We build up, perhaps in our minds or even among each other, sometimes an unrealistic vision of what community in the church is going to look like. This small group will be the best thing you've ever done. And then you show up in week one and there's loads of awkward silences and there's loads of awkward conversations. The vision hasn't met your reality if you serve in this ministry, it will be so much fun. And then you go there, and you expend energy, and no one says thanks as you serve, and kids scream in your face, perhaps, and don't listen to a word you say. I'm sure downstairs is different right now. We say this event will change your life, and sometimes the reality doesn't always match the vision. I think there's a danger sometimes that we overpromise and underdeliver. But actually, what really happens, I think, is that we can set people up for disappointment or set ourselves up for disappointment if we have an unrealistic expectation of what community is in the life of the church. And so it's important that we see the incredible vision, okay? This morning, I don't want to downplay the incredible vision of being part of Christ's community. In fact, I hope that I will elevate that this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 10 but I also want us to see the honest reality of what it means to be part of such a community. And Hebrews 10 does this for us because the passage comes in two parts. We see the privileges and we also see the responsibilities. In Hebrews chapter ten, the, the passage uh, is almost divided up into two parts. The first part is what we have received in Christ, so therefore our privileges, and the second part reminds us of how we should respond to those privileges, and that's our responsibilities. Through Jesus, we have received the gift of community called the church and family of God, but also that brings with us a respons- with it a responsibility of community. But this morning, what I want to do is just want to pick out four phrases, four little phrases from this passage that I hope might be memorable and that you might want to remember and think about, or or that one or two of them might really linger with you as the week goes on. Um, So the four phrases are, brothers and sisters, first three words of the passage, brothers and sisters, draw near to God, spur one another on and until we see the day. The first two are the gift and the privilege of community. Brothers and sisters, draw near to God. The second two are the responsibility. Spur one another on, and until we see the day. So, brothers and sisters. A common theme of the New Testament is how fellow Christians are regularly referred to as brothers and sisters. And there's a thread of family that runs right throughout the pictures of church. And I don't know about you, but sometimes the image of us being brothers and sisters can sometimes come across as maybe just some sort of nice, cheesy uh, Christian idea. You know, we're brothers and sisters, but actually the reality of that is we don't really act like that too often. How can we say that we're brothers and sisters? How can uh, someone who I don't know or I've never met be described as my brother or sister? You see, the reason we can be part of a community in the first place The reason we can call ourselves part of the community of God is not because we maybe like each other or think it would be nice to hang out with each other a little bit more. The the reason we can be part of the community of God is because we have been called into His family. We have been invited in by the Father, by the host, I guess. He has invited us in. The head of the house has called us in to relationship with Him, and, because for, and for anyone who has relationship with him, that makes us part of his family and therefore um, brothers and sisters of each other. We were abandoned and alone in the world. And for me, the image of adoption is really helpful here. He adopted us and he called us his own. We were on our own, isolated and abandoned. We've been loved by a father and given access to him through the son. And it's stunning. Matthew Henry writes this, all true Christians are a chosen generation. They make one family, a sort of, a sort and species of people distinct from the common world. You know, our lives might be different on earth, but through the gospel, our stories are the same. Our lives might be scattered across this city tomorrow. We're scattered, and yet we can be called together and one through Christ. And just like a family aren't always in the same room at the same time, Okay, that's realistic and family. We don't always we aren't always in the same room at the same time or in the same place at the same time. There is still this bond that unites us and binds us together. And so your life, our lives are different. They will be different. Our contexts are different, our backgrounds are different, but compared to the perfection of God, we are all on some sort of level footing with one another. I heard a phrase last year that I love. I think I may have said it here before but the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And what I notice is that, about this passage is that there's no singulars in the passage. If you look at the language that the writer of the Hebrews uses in this passage, there is not one, everything is a plural um, in, in this passage. So there's lots of we and us and ours, and there's no I or me or mine. And I think that's something powerful to say to us as the family of God. In fact, the majority of the New Testament wasn't written to individuals to read on their own, but actually it was written to groups of people to be read in community together. In Christ, there are no singulars. There are only plurals. In Christ, there are no singulars, only plurals. If you are in Christ, then you're adopted. You have been adopted into His family, and you become part of the people of God. There's no fringe members of the family you're in. You've been adopted and you've been brought in and you're part of the community of God. In fact, God Himself is plural. Do you get that? The Trinity, Father, Spirit, Son. God Himself is plural. There's no singulars in the Godhead. Think about that. In a world rampant with individualism, in a world out there that encourages you, you know, we have personal everything, you know, personal shoppers and personal trainers. And on the commute in the morning we search for single seats. I know we do. And that, that's what we do. We like being alone or isolated at times. We, we retreat behind our front doors all too often. And yet, in a world rampant with individualism, we are called into a family of God. Brothers and sisters together. You and I used to be individuals. But in Christ, we're not that anymore. We're the body of Christ, the family of God. And in, in the family, everyone belongs. And attendance in the family isn't really driven by what's going on. I mean, can you imagine getting an invite from your family at Christmas? You know, hey, here's the date or Christmas Day, for example. Can you come and spend the day with us on Christmas Day? We would love to see you. And you say, okay, thanks very much for the invitation. Can you tell me what sort of music is gonna, are you going to be playing on the day? You know, what sort of music is going to be going on? Or what are the activities that we're going to be doing? Because I just need to work out whether I like those activities. Or, yeah, I'll come along, but can I have access to the TV remote for the day? Can I actually have control of that remote? Thank you very much. In fact, I've realized that at times I have done that in my family. But, you know, we, we don't determine attendance to our family based on what's going on, based on whether we like what the activities are not generally attendance is driven because we want to gather with the people because they're our family. We want to connect with them. We love them. You know what? This is not an event. 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning, this is not an event. Wednesday night in your community is not an event. This is a family gathering. This is a family gathering. And this gathering doesn't just start at 11 a.m. It starts as soon as you get here. As soon as you get here, the family, the family gathering starts. It's, it's happening as you arrive. It should, so, so what if you aimed, what if your aim for a church wasn't to be the best church, but to be a loving family? What would that look like? How would that transform how you relate it to one another? Not just seeing the functions of church, the activities of church, but seeing the family of God. How are we treating each other as family? I think it should mean defending one another fiercely. Just like you defend another member of your family if they were being spoken about negatively, I think we should fiercely defend one another. It should mean prioritizing time for one another like we would our family. It should mean listening well to one another, encouraging one another, and praying for one another. We're brothers and sisters together, but also the the encouragement here, the invitation in this passage is to draw near to God. And I think this is important to highlight and, and to see that actually the passage shows us that the access privileges have been opened up to us. We have been invited into a restricted area. You know, people get excited about a VIP area at times. It's not really a VIP area. It just means you've probably paid a little bit more. Uh, or uh, we, wanna, we want you to think that you're really, really special. But, you know, we've been invited into a restricted area. We've been given confidence to enter the most holy place. We've been cleansed from a guilty conscience, and we can draw an ear to God in intimacy. We just sang, how great is your love. And, and that's what this passage is, is also showing that we can draw near to God because He has drawn near to us. I was once impressed that my parents traveled to Dublin on a rainy Monday to cheer me on during a marathon, okay? But we have a God who traveled far further to reconcile Himself to us. He, he, He stepped through the curtain. He smashed through the curtain and made a way for us to be with Him. He reached across a divide and welcomed us in. We were enemies of God, and He brought us close. He drew near to us so we could draw near to him. That's the purpose. We don't just meet to have community with one another, as important and brilliant as that is. We gather from our scattered lives to have communion with him. Not just a community together, but have communion with God. Now, of course, I know God is present everywhere in the world. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. God is with us everywhere. We know that. But God also promises to be with His people when they gather in a special way. You see, in the Old Testament, I think we can miss that. In the Old Testament, the place for people to meet God was the temple. And the writer to the Hebrews is kind of drawn on that image here as he writes. You see, they they had to meet God in a physical place. It had to be a building. It had to be the physical place of the temple. But in the new covenant, where is the temple or what is the temple? You see, in the new covenant, God's presence isn't restricted to a specific building, but it is found in the temple is represented by His people. God's presence is found as His people gather. Do you see it? God's presence isn't found in a building, but among His people. And God tends to do powerful things and tangible things when His people gather. A whole nation was moved to repentance when Esther preached. 3,000 people trusted in Jesus when Peter shared God's message at Pentecost. Jesus told, told us or said that when two or three people are gathered together, that he would, his father would be there. And James encouraged the sick to call the elders of the church and pray and anoint them with oil. Significant things happen when God's people gather together. I think we can take it for granted. But don't miss the invitation. Don't miss the invitation to draw near to God, because he wants to draw near to us. Over the last nine months as a family, we've been walking through a bit of a journey um, of uh, beginning to uh, a process of respite fostering. Um, without going into a huge amount of the details, we basically have a, teen, a young teenager who comes and stays with us some weekends and some days and evenings during the week, and um, it's been interesting and great and all of that. But we, we went a few months ago to visit uh, my family, my mom and dad, uh, on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, this young man hadn't met uh, my family before. And so I told him I prepared him for this visit. We were going and I was saying, you know, you're going to meet my mom and my dad and they're going to be there. This is the people who, who are going to be in the house. And so you'll meet. And I, I, I said, you'll meet my mom and dad. And that was fine. We uh, arrived at the house and Dad opened the door and he welcomed um, this young man into, into his home. And, and I, I suppose I didn't say who it was or anything. I told him, you know, whose house we were going to. and um, I should say this is a young man with special needs. And so we, we, we went into the house and we were probably together maybe for about an hour in the living room. And after about an hour, the question came. And Dad was in the room and he was chatting. And after about an hour, the, the question came when's your dad going to get here? When's your dad going to get here? And I thought it was an amazing question. And I sort of sniggered and laughed. And I said, there he is. This is my dad. But I'd taken it for granted. I had assumed. I hadn't said, this is my dad. I'd introduced him by his name, Brian. But I hadn't said, this is my dad. I'd taken it for granted that he might know who it was. Don't take the Father's presence for granted whenever we gather here. Don't take it for granted. Introduce yourself to Him. Introduce others to Him. He wants to meet with you. The goal when we gather is to meet with the head of the the family. That's our goal. And it is brilliant that we're with one another as we do. We're going to explore that in just a moment. But this is about encounter. It's about intimacy. And do not just see that as a Sunday thing, you know, that this is the place. As you meet in your communities, there's an opportunity to encounter God, to draw near to Him. Why would we want to miss out in that stunning invitation? God does significant things when His people gather. Don't miss out. So some, those are some of the privileges, just some of them, brothers and sisters, family, And This invitation to draw near to God, I want to touch on the responsibility, spur one another on. There are some privileges, but with privileges come responsibilities. And the gospel doesn't just call us into communion with God. It calls us into community with one another. Our Christian lives should be active and not passive. And so this passage ends with these two verses. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I love that verse. I was actually at prayer gathering with Clark on Friday morning. Clark and Sharon on Friday morning. Clark prayed this verse, and uh, I'd just been preparing. Uh, well, I hadn't been preparing at that point. It was a 7 a.m. prayer meeting. But on a Thursday, I'd been preparing some of this talk, and, and, and so straight away, I was like, I was really thankful for him praying this verse Uh, and maybe thinking that we were on the right track with what we're doing this morning, spurring one another on. I love this idea and image that we, you and I, spur one another on. We are to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And that should be the heart of our community. Not giving up meeting like some people do, but encouraging one another all the more. Let's be honest. A generation around us are leaving the church behind them. As some are in the habit of doing. For different reasons, many people have decided that the thing that I've given my life to and you to is irrelevant to them. But people giving up in the church is nothing new. It's not a 21st century phenomenon. The writer of the Hebrews writing in possibly the first or second century tells us that it was happening then too somewhere in the habit of giving up meeting together. And and not meeting together can quickly become a habit, and habits are hard to change. And we must avoid going it alone and thinking that we don't need to meet with other Christians. I've got the sermon podcasts, and I've got the YouTube channels, and I've got the great worship that I can worship God in my bedroom, perhaps, I don't know, or wherever in your car. But we need the encouragement of other believers if we are to uh, avoid being pulled off the track. Uh, you know, I, I think if we're not careful, we can sometimes think we are, we are committed to something when actually in reality we really aren't. Perhaps in the way that I'm committed to my local parkrun. I'm really glad that it's there in my local community. I really like it. I'll speak well of it. And I, I'll tell some other people about it and that they should go and that they should do that parkrun sometimes. If you ask me if I go to parkrun, I'll say, yeah, Yeah, I do. But in reality, I turn up once every couple of months, whether it's whenever it suits me. Basically I attend if I have nothing else on and I never volunteer and yet I think I'm committed to it. Or like how I felt whenever I heard my local library had closed. I felt real sadness about the loss and the closure of that library. I was really fond of that library. I had some amazing memories in it as a child. I was frustrated that less people were using that library. Why do people not want to read books anymore? I thought to myself, and I appreciated its presence in my local community. I just hadn't been inside it for 13 years. (laughs) We sometimes think we're committed to something when in reality, perhaps we aren't prioritizing it. And I think that's how many people view the church. Of course, some people are negative and antagonistic towards us and it. But I think many people in our generation aren't just cold towards the church. They just don't prioritize it. Tim Keller says this, everyone says they want community and friendship, but mention accountability or commitment to people and they run the other way. We're not here to consume content We're not here to rate things out of 10. Please don't this morning. But we are here to be part of a community that spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's not just a minister's job or a pastor's job or a leader's job. That is everyone's job. It's all of us. In a family, everyone serves. Everyone serves. Well, actually, my two-year-old doesn't do very much. But uh, in a family, most people serve. Well, that's what we're called to do. We're called to pitch in and serve, and we serve not just by how we volunteer, but by who we are. We don't just rely on the community created by the church. Oh, it's a great church because it has a great community. We are community. We create community through our lives. You know, this will not be a welcoming church just because there's a bunch of amazing people with green lanyards at the door, and they are brilliant. This will not be a welcoming church just because there's a bunch of people with lanyards in the door who smile. This will be a welcoming church if a bunch of people open up their lives to one another. I can think of times when someone's prayer has brought a change in something in my life. I can think of times when someone's encouragement has spurred me on. I can think of times where someone's words in a small group have challenged me. I can think of times where seeing someone serve in an area of need and be sacrificial, has spurred me on to be more sacrificial. How can you spur one another on to love and good deeds? And you know what? I actually think this happens in really ordinary ways and pretty unspectacular ways too. In fact, I think the heart of Christian community is giving yourselves permission to be ordinary and unspectacular, to invite people into your ordinary lives and share it with one another. You don't have to be dynamic, you just have to be faithful. You don't have to be spectacular. You might just need to be open. And you know, I've been at lots of Christian events over the years where I've heard a dramatic story from the front or even heard from a famous Christian. But you know, I've heard far, far less interviews with a couple who've been married for 45 years talking honestly about the ups and downs of their marriage. And rarely sells books those type of stories. They rarely draw a crowd, but they're ordinary examples of humble and faithful service to God. In the summer, I read a book called Ordinary, and in it, one woman spoke about going to church with many middle-class people who are mostly older than her and live pretty normal lives. This is what she wrote. My life is really rich in dirty dishes these days and really short in revolutions. Preach. Uh, I have come to appreciate the community their lifetimes of sturdy faithfulness to Jesus, their commitment to prayer and the tangible, beautiful generosity that they show in unremarkable ways. Each week we average boring sinners and boring saints gather around ordinary bread and wine and Christ himself is there with us. It never sells books, it won't be remembered, but it's what makes a life. And who knows, she writes, maybe at the end of days a hurried prayer for an enemy, a passing kindness to a neighbor, or budget planning on a boring Thursday will be the revolution stories of God making all things new. I have no idea how budget planning on a boring Thursday still will be a revolution story, but maybe that speaks to you this morning and gives you hope. Do not be scared to be ordinary. Don't feel the pressure to be spectacular, but learn from the ordinary, average, sorry, saints and sinners that make up the life of this church and be inspired by their faith. See God in the mundane as well as the miraculous. We need both in the community of the church. Invite people into your ordinary lives and your unspectacular communities. Don't think it has to be the perfect home before you invite someone in. Don't think you have to be the perfect example. Maybe you just need to be the personal one. Work out how you can impact the city in consistent and ordinary ways. Say yes to a revolution. And then roll up your sleeves to do the dishes. That's community. I've mentioned running several times last time. It can seem to people like an individual sport. But in the last year, I found joy in competing as part of a team. And recently, we competed as a club at a local kind of relay race. um, And it was amazing to experience the dynamic of being part of a team, you know, guys who would normally be competing against each other. We were training together in the run-up. We were encouraging one another. We were supporting one another, and all because we had the common purpose. We had a common purpose. And, you know, In the church, we need to see the common purpose that we have. Yes, at times we will be scattered at different parts of the city to work, or we will be scattered across different communities in the life of this church, or we will be scattered to live in different parts of the city but we are together because of our common purpose. There's no place for competition in the kingdom of God. There's no place for it. We have a common purpose. And it's referred to, I think, at almost the start of every gathering here. Central has a common purpose. And so as you work towards that common purpose, you need to spur one another on because it's hard. It's a big vision. It's a big goal. And you need to spur one another on. This city will not be transformed just by opening those doors on a Sunday. But a city might be transformed and changed by opening our homes and opening our hearts and opening our lives. The parable of the mustard seed, the man planted the seed. Where did he plant it? He planted it in his own garden first. Plant community in your life first and let it grow from there. Last phrase, and I'll do this one quickly. Until you see the day. I would love us this morning to have a bigger vision for Christian community. Because the, the, the vision that this passage leads us towards is huge. In fact, it's eternal. Encourage one another all the more until you see the day. The community you are part of will last forever. Some of you here lead, leading communities right now are freaking out. <laughs> Lasting forever? I thought I signed up for this thing for a year. But this isn't it. This isn't actually it. Yes, the church on earth is brilliant, but it's also flawed. So don't pin your hope on a faith. Sorry, don't pin the hope of your faith on a flawed community of people. Put your hope in a perfect Christ. I know people have been let down by the Christian community in the past. I know people have feel let down at times by the church. You might even have or do feel that from time to time. But don't Pin the hope of your faith on a bunch of broken people. Put your hope in Christ. You see, as Christians, we have a secure and certain hope for the future that we will finally meet Jesus face to face on the day that we die or on the day when he returns. But the church will live on. The church will live on. The thing that we are part of now will last forever. But here's the good news. It will be in its perfect form. I'm not sure it'll mean 30-minute talks and more leadership meetings. Amen. And I'm convinced that we'll be freed from, more seriously, we'll be freed from conflict and division and pain. The best version of the church has yet to arrive. It's not arrived yet. It's still to come. The best wine is being saved to the end of the party. It is still to come. And this is good, but it isn't. yet, because a day is coming when we won't be scattered anymore, where we won't be scattered any longer, but from every tribe and every tongue, we will come together and gathered. And you know what? It won't be about us at all. It'll all be about Him. And in the meantime, let's keep making it about Him, but also let's keep going in the right direction by spurring one another on to love and good deeds because we need an eternal perspective in our earthly lives. Keep going until you see the day. Keep spurring one another on because we need it.